We are currently in the book of Romans, uh, working our way through the book of Romans, and we are we find ourselves in chapter nine right now. And this week, maybe more than others, requires some context. So if you've ever been like to a jewelry shop or something and you see they have all of the diamonds laid out and the the diamonds are, you know, under glass and there's sort of a dark background, the, the lighting is low, there's a dark background and there's a spotlight on them so that you see just how sparkly and shiny these diamonds are. Well, sometimes when we preach and we look at the word of God, we get to look at the diamond. And sometimes we're looking at the spotlight and then other times you're just looking at the, the dark that's there so that the diamond can shine bright. And that's sort of this week. And so uh, let me give you a little bit of context on what's what happened in chapter eight so that as we get into this dark part, you're remembering this is supposed to be in contrast to the great and glorious things that we've seen before. And so in Ch- Romans chapter eight. In verses 31 through 35, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He, he lays this out and says, look, this is, this is the great and glorious promises of God that Jesus has justified you. That When you are God's elect, God's chosen ones, no one can bring any charge against you because God is the one who justifies you. So whatever may uh, accuse you, even if you accuse yourself and say, I am not worthy of the grace of God, then that's exactly what he's saying is, yes, that's true. No one is worthy of the grace of God. It is God who justifies you through Jesus who died for your sin and rose again from the dead to demonstrate uh, his victory over sin and death. And so this is the, these are just some of the promises in chapter 8. And then you get into chapter 9. And uh, he begins to go, Now, are those promises of God that we read in chapter 8 certain for us? Can we really cling to those and hold on to them and believe that, yes, this is the case, that we can hang on to these? Because we see that the nation of Israel was given uh, some promises of God, and, and then it seems as though not all of those promises were fulfilled. And so uh, how can we be sure that God uh, will fulfill his promises to hold on to us and that nothing will be able to um, come against us? And so he begins to to say that that it is because this is through, again, God's grace and God has chosen some of his people. He he has made these promises and, and in electing some, even though none of them would choose him by themselves, God elects some and chooses them and says, um, this one's mine, this one's mine, this one's mine, so that certainly his promises would be fulfilled. If those promises were dependent on other people, they would not be fulfilled. But because they are dependent on him, he says, I will definitely fulfill my promises. 
So then the, that brought up the question, what, the, what shall we say then? This is uh, Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is why. We can trust in those promises because it depends on God, not on our will, not on our effort, not on our work or exertion or how hard we try, but on God alone. But on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And that leads us into this week, right? Because he, he, we finished last week with this great statement. So then God being sovereign and being God, he just has mercy on whoever he wants and he hardens whoever he wants. And you might have left going, that sounds great, but also kind of leaves me with this question. And I'm sorry we didn't have time to do last week and this week last week. Because each of these sections is enough all on its own. And so you may have left with questions still in your mind. And you may have had this question in your mind that we find in Romans chapter 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Maybe you had that question. You went, okay, I think that's great. If God chooses some so that his promises are sure and he picks some people and he says, yep, you and you and you and you will certainly receive my promises. That's great. But what about the other people? I think it's great that you're God and you are sovereign and you can have mercy on whomever you have mercy and you can harden whomever you want to harden. I think that's fantastic that you have the ability to do that. But um, then how come you still find fault with these people who have this hardness? How come God... I mean, we just asked last week, is God unjust? And we said, no, no, God is very just. No one deserved his mercy, and yet God extended his mercy to those whom he has chosen. So now we ask this question, but hang on, how can he find fault with these other people? Because who can resist his will? And so Paul uh, answers that question with this very satisfying answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are to ask God those questions? Does that make you feel better? No? Here he says, look, God is sovereign. God is over all. God can do whatever he wants because he is God. And you say, okay, yeah, that's fine. But how come this? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? In fact, he gives an example. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
if you've ever worked with pottery, you can, can shape it. You can make whatever you want. I mean, if you have sufficient skill, you can make whatever you want. I can make blobs that look somewhat like birds and blobs that look somewhat like horses, and I'm really good at snakes. That's my level of ability. But for those who who are are really uh, talented with pottery, they can make cups, and they can make bowls, and they can make pots. They, they They can make all kinds of beautiful things, and you just look at that and go, how did they do that? And they can, they can spin it on the wheel and, and put their fingers in and, and draw it up so that it has this beautiful curve to it. And then they say, you know, no, I, not so much. And they just smash it back down and they start over again. And they just, they just make it however they want. They can, can turn it into whatever they want it to be. And so out of that, that same lump, you could, could make um, a bowl or a cup. You could make a salad bowl, you could make a hand wash basin, or you could make a chamber pot or a bedpan. People don't make those so much, but you could. And who would you be to say to the molder, why did you do that? Well, I needed a salad bowl, and I needed a wash basin, and I needed a bedpan. So that's what I made. That's how I wanted to do it. And God is God, and so He can do it the way that He wants to do it. I I have had my kids come up to me and, and say, Hey, Dad, can I go play at the park? No. Why not? Because I said so. I'm the dad and I get to decide. Hey, dad, can I have cake? No. Why not? Because I said so. I'm the dad. I get to make those decisions. They get to listen to them. That's how it works. And, and we could do that all day with anything you want to insert into a park or cake or whatever. I can say, nope, I'm the dad. Now, I may or may not have great reasons for not letting them go to the park. But whether or not I have those reasons, or whether or not I want to explain those reasons to them, the fact that I'm the dad means I get to make that call, and they get to listen to it. Nope, we're going to do this other thing instead. And God, because He is God, gets to make things however He wants, and He gets to uh, call whomever He wants, and have mercy on whomever He wants, and compassion on whomever He wants, and harden whoever He wants. It's up to Him. So, if God does that, and if God decides... I need a salad bowl and I need a wash basin and I need a a bed pan. And he has the right to do some things that have this great noble use and some that have a very ignoble use. Why does God need multiple kinds of things? Why, Why wouldn't he just make them all salad bowls? And we could just walk around and go, man, 
we are a great bunch of salad bowls. And we could all be salad bowls together. And so that the, the next question then is, why does he do this? And so he goes on in verse 22 and says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God, God could have gone... I don't like that one. I'm just going to smash it down and start over. Or having put the whole thing together, gone, you know, actually, I don't want any bedpans. Crush! No more bedpans. Because that, that's what I, I find myself. I just look around and I go, how come we've got all of these people doing all of these things that are not good? I don't like that they are doing those things. Why does God allow that stuff to continue to happen? God's judgment could have come right now or last year or the year before or a couple of centuries ago. God could have just gone, done, no more of all of this ugliness, no more of all of this sin. He could have been done with it a long time ago. But it's instead, what if, just hypothetically, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? What if, what if it isn't that God isn't willing or isn't able to deal with all things justly, but what if God's just waiting because he is ridiculously patient? I find my, myself sometimes um, wishing I was ridiculously patient. I've had people say, you know, you shouldn't pray for patience because then you'll have to use it. And I think, you know what, I'm going to have to use it either way. And I find myself rising up in anger... When people do things that bother me, or when my kids do something and I'm just tired and go, I'm so done with this. No more. I'm done with it. And I wish that I was more patient. I can see that there are a couple of you that resonate with me and there are a couple of you that don't have kids. But God is just ridiculously patient. What if, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, he has endured with much patience? With much patience. It reminded me of Romans chapter 2, in, in verses 2 through 5. It says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on all who practice such things. There was this long list of sin in chapter 1 that we're not going to review, but if you'd like to review a long list of sin, you can look at chapter 1 later. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's, God's judgment and justice are righteous, but he is waiting because he is so patient before doing it. And that righteousness that wrath that he has against sin, and when the judgment does come, it is a perfectly just judgment. Because no one deserves God's grace. And when we start going, hang on, time out, how come God's wrath is going to be poured out on those people? That doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem fair to me. I think you misunderstand God's grace. There is none righteous. There is no one who has earned the favor of God. There is no one who in and of themselves, in their flesh, desires God. And so, Everybody, everybody in this room and in the whole world and that has ever lived, save Jesus, deserves God's wrath. Every single one of them. And yet, despite that, God saves some, chooses them. No one is owed the grace of God. When we look at it and we go, okay, but God is merciful and he does save some, so how come he doesn't save them all? We can't just go, that's not right, because God can do it the way that God wants to do it. And none of them actually deserved to be saved in the first place. None of them deserved his mercy. That's why it's mercy. God is not unjust. He is just in this. But because it's such an unpopular thing, this wrath of God against sin is such an unpopular thing, people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They just want to avoid it and stay away from it. Because as long as you talk about a God in heaven who loves everyone, then that's not very offensive to people outside this church. It's not very offensive to us to just go, you know, God just really loves people. That sounds like the kind of God that I want. Everybody goes, yeah, we really want a God who loves. Bravo for God. I just really appreciate how tolerant God is and how he just loves everyone, whether or not they deserve it. And then you start talking about, no, no, actually no one, no one deserves the love and mercy of God. No one deserves the grace of God, but he chooses 
out of all of these despicable, wicked sinners, he chooses some to extend his mercy and grace to. And his wrath is against all the others because of their sin. His wrath is against them all. And then people go, time out. No, I don't like that kind of a God. I don't know why God would do that. And because it's such an unpopular thing, then people skirt the issue and don't talk about the issue. But it's here in the scriptures. And so as we come along, it we have to point it out. We have to acknowledge that it is here. And I say that because it is a very unpopular thing, even in the church right now, to acknowledge the wrath of God. And there are many groups and organizations that I could point out as um, being characteristic of this, but, but one that, that I uh, discovered this summer that I'm going to mention by name is the Bible Project. The, the Bible Pro- Project has these amazing videos that explain the scriptures in really clear ways. And in almost every area, they are just right on theologically. And I just so appreciate their work. And so when somebody came to me this summer and said, did you know that they totally avoid the wrath of God? I went, what? No. And so I went through. I couldn't find it anywhere. Not in any of the videos. Nowhere. I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying that they straight up deny the wrath of God, but they are at least avoiding it. So that when you watch the, the videos on Romans, there's some great stuff about how Romans is laid out and how all of these things. I, I mean, I've, I've been going through. Uh, they've got on version, which is a Bible app. If you don't have it, it's a great way to have the Bible with you on your phone wherever you go. And they, the Bible Project has some really great uh, devotionals. To, that mostly just have the, the word, the scriptures, and you're reading through it, and it's broken up, and it's really good. And, but uh, I went through the Romans videos. Nothing about the wrath of God. The sin yields consequences and broken relationship, but they just don't talk about God's wrath. And I say that because I have great respect for them. And I have promoted them to you and want to say how, how much it hurt me to realize this. And I still would say, they're a great resource. Go ahead and use them. But no, they avoid this issue. Because the wrath of God is not popular. And yet it's here. And very clear. So why is it here? Verse 23, Romans 9, verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Why is it there? In order that those whom he has called might see the contrast between the wrath of God against sin and the mercy that they are receiving. 
It is so that there might be this darkness beneath the diamond so that when the spotlight is shined on it, that thing sparkles brilliantly in contrast to the darkness behind it. If God had chosen, you know, I am only going to bring into existence those whom I have chosen as my people. I'm only going to bring them in by my mercy. They would not see the contrast and the spectacular love of God for his people whom he has called apart from the darkness of his wrath against sin. And so when we look at the world around us and we see the sin out there and we think God needs to judge this, God needs to make this right, it is there so that we can see the mercy that he has had on us. Because when we are saying that about those people who deserve the wrath of God, what we recognize is that we also deserve that wrath of God and we're in the darkness until he has pulled us out. So that when we're looking at the contrast between the two, the darkness, we have no choice but to go, My God, you are awesome! I didn't deserve this. I deserved that. And it gives us a great humility and compassion for those who find themselves outside of the grace of God right now. Because apart from His grace and His calling of us, we would be right there with them. Part of the darkness to highlight God's grace for someone else. But He has done this in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy. So that those salad bowls and wash basins can go, Wow! God, I could have been a chamber pot and a bedpan. And you have made me this way instead. When I, um, <clears throat> in the summer times, my family uh, goes to the library a lot. Actually, we go to the library a lot, all the time. But in the summer times, we go particularly because there's a summer reading program. And in the summer reading program, if you read for a number of consecutive days or you read a certain number of books or something, then you can enter into win the drawings. And um, because my family has done this and there are several people in my family, all of us entering into these drawings, then year after year we have won these drawings. And I have begun to think that uh, we really deserve to win these drawings because we have uh, filled out the things and turned them in. And then we didn't win one year. And I went, what? What do you mean we didn't win? We did the reading and we turned it in and usually we win the grand prize. And so what's going on here? And I began to realize there are other people entering. And it made me realize that I was taking for granted that we would win prizes from the library. As though somehow the library owed us prizes. They didn't. But in not winning, 
And seeing, but the part, part of the problem for me was I didn't know how many prizes there were and I didn't know how many entrants there were. But when you begin to see when you're winning or losing that there are a great number of entrants and very few prizes, I, I, what did that mega thing go for? Like one point something billion dollars? There were lots of people that knew they didn't win. And the people who won knew they were unique and special because they have won. And you have been selected to win as God's choosing something far greater than a 1.6 something billion dollar prize. But you don't believe that if you think that God owed it to you or everybody who enters gets it or whatever. When you look around and you see all of the people that God has not taken as His own and extended His mercy to, then you begin to know, wow! God has been so gracious to me. God has been so merciful to me. So that in verse in uh, Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. His purpose is to glorify Himself in the world and to extend His love that we might know His love to those whom He has called. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It was God, it was God, it was God, it was God. Therefore, in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God has chosen us, if God has elected us, if God has called us and predestined us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Because who could bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. But what's striking about all of these things is not just that God has called some people for Himself, but that of those people, they are both Jews and Gentiles. That God has called people that were not just those uh, Israelites whom He had given His promises to, but He has included now other people from the nations. Right? So when you're reading Gentiles, it just means non-Jews. And, and in the Old Testament, in many places, it refers to them as the nations. And so anybody here who does not come from a descendancy of, um, of David and, and Jacob, were those people, the nations, the Gentiles. 
And so he is saying, look, this is how it works. God has chosen some and he can do that because he is God. And that's true, not just for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles also who are brought in. As indeed he says in Hosea, this is verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Those were words that should sound familiar because Taylor read them at the beginning of the service. They come from the book of Hosea, where uh, if you uh, remember the book of, of Hosea, that Hosea was a prophet whom God told, I want you to go and mar- marry this woman um, who is a wayward woman. And I want you to take her as, as your wife because um, it represents, your marriage to her will represent um, my relationship to my people. My relationship to my people, the, the nation of Israel, who are also being like a wayward wife. And so uh, when she has weaned, then they, she has a child and he says, uh, you will call that child no mercy because my, child, my uh, people are not receiving my mercy, which is a terrible name for a kid. And then the Lord said, then she conceived and she bore a son and the, the Lord said, uh, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's also another terrible name for a kid. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So, so God is, is making these promises that, look, you are being wayward right now, and I'm going to cut you off and call you, you are not my people. I have been saying, you are my people, and I am your God. If you've been here for very long, you have heard me say that phrase over and over again. That's part of the covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Over and over and over again, God says this to uh, the Israelites, and now he is saying, nope, not my people, and I am not your God. I'm going to kick you out and send you away amongst the nations because you are not my people, and I am not your God because you have strayed. But, those who were called not my people, I am going to bring back and include them as my people. And Paul is now using this in his letter to the Romans to say, therefore, the Gentiles, the nations, will be called also his people. There are some, some from the Israelites, some from the Jews, who will be called his people, and there are some from the nations who will be called his people, whom he selects. And uh, you might first look at that and go, time out. Hold up. You're going to use Hosea? You're going to use Hosea to talk about how uh, you are bringing in the Gentiles. Hosea is totally and completely about God's people, the nation of Israel. Right. Yes, that was God's people, the nation of Israel. But then remember how he said, not my people? And then they weren't. 
And then when they weren't his people and were scattered amongst the nations, he called them and brought them to himself. And so if amongst those he calls a remnant, some of them, a small portion of the ones who were dispersed as his people, and amongst them also bring some of the nations who were never called his people, not my people, and now says, and you also are my people and included into that. And I bet the Jews, when they were reading this letter, went, What? They get included in that promise of Hosea? Yeah. The nations get included in that promise in Hosea in the same way that it was included in the promise to Abraham that to you and your, uh, your descendants will be blessed and through your descendant. Um, all nations will be blessed. And now this is specifying it even further that those who were not my people are going to be called my people. And now Paul's going, and that was talking about the Jews and the Gentiles both. Because if God can call His people who had been previously rejected, the Israelites, as His people, He can certainly also call those, the Gentiles, who had never been called His people, as His people. And then again, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. This is verse 27 of Romans chapter 9. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And so if you turn to Isaiah chapter 1, it says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers and children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Just this reminder over and over again that yes, even though you were uh, called as a group, God's people, as the Israelites, you have so sinned and strayed. And so God's judgment is coming and only, only because of God's grace will a remnant remain. Only a very small portion, but there will be this small portion that remains because God has said, I will not utterly forsake them. I will keep a small portion of them as mine. And then in verse 29 of Romans chapter 9, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's again quoting from Isaiah in, in chapter 1, verses 4, and uh, then again in 7 through 11. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Because of their sin, God was completely against them. And they said, we deserve to be completely wiped out. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, where the the fire of God rained down from heaven and just completely annihilated the whole thing. Gone. And yet... God left a few. The Lord of hosts. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And as I look at this passage, I can't wait to get to the implications of this as we go into chapter 10. And it so makes me want to reach back and cling to the hope of the gospel and the light in chapter 8. Because when you look at the wrath of God, you cannot deny that God's wrath is against sinners and all qualify as sinners. And His wrath is against them all. And if it were not for His gracious mercy that selected some, all would be completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. But for the time being, he is patiently waiting so that we may see the distinction, the contrast in the glory between God's mercy and his wrath. And as recipients of his grace, we cry out and praise him. And so I hope that even on this morning when we're looking at the darkest part, it causes us to admire the diamond all the more. That even as we uh, look at this destruction due because of God's wrath, that yet we come out hopeful and rejoicing, believing that God has saved us, not because of our work or our great desire, but because He has chosen us to believe that Jesus died in our place and received the wrath that we were due so that we might receive His righteousness. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, there are times that Your Word is um, overwhelming And as we consider your wrath against sin, we can understand why it is so unpopular. Because nobody wants to face your wrath. But Lord, we acknowledge that you are sovereign. 
that you are God over all? That all have turned from you and have sinned and have denied who you are. And so, Lord, we recognize that you are just in pouring out your wrath against sinners and that we, apart from the love of Jesus, would be counted amongst those who are objects of destruction. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us humble as we reflect on that. I pray that you would make us joyful as we rejoice in the mercy that we have received. And I pray that you would make us compassionate toward those who have not received your mercy and who are not your people. Lord, we pray, would you redeem them? Father, I ask on behalf of of those who are here today, that as they are thinking and praying for uh, friends and co-workers and family members who right now are outside of your grace, Father, we pray that you would soften their hearts and redeem them for the sake of your glory, for the sake of their joy and ours, Because you are a great and awesome God, we ask for this. Amen.